Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste, and there's an explosion sound effect. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I uh, don't write for any particular outlet. I'm just a film critic. I'm yeah. out there in the world, watching a lot of films and criticizing them in podcast form. And with me, as always, is... My name is William Bibiani. I am also a critic, and everybody calls me Bibbs. And this week on the Critically Acclaimed podcast... Russell, some papers here. <laughs> it's yeah. like because we're closing out the news broadcast. Uh, we're reviewing the new releases: The Craft Legacy, Come Play, uh, The Adventures of Wolf Boy, Big Red Wolf, and we missed it like a week or two ago, but we really want to talk about it. Love and Monsters. We're also reviewing on the critically acclaimed streaming club because our patrons voted for it. Uh, the Oscar-nominated Michael Caine comedy drama Alfie. What's it all about, Alfie? We're going to find mm-hmm. out. Thank you, Cher. And, uh, uh, yeah. We're going to be talking about Alfie. That was the, that was on CBS All Access. Yeah. Uh, CBS All Access uh, is soon going to change its name to Paramount Plus because it's all the Paramount stuff. So if you want to watch The Ghost in the Darkness, boy, howdy, they got you covered. Thank God. <laughs> or, I was wondering where, or, where or can the, I find it? Or The Relic or all those great Paramount movies I remember from the 90s. Everyone's favorite studio. <laughs> Paramount. I, you know, I followed Paramount very closely just because I knew they had Star Trek. Yeah. So I knew that's where I was I was paying attention to what uh, Paramount was doing. Yeah. And there's a whole political uh, rigmarole about CBS All Access and why they're changing their name to Paramount Plus. But that's boring. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to review some films instead. Yeah, a lot uh, of films. And we're also going to, before we get to that, before we get to all of that, we have to talk about the passing of one of the biggest movie stars in the history of the motion picture industry. Uh, mm-hmm. This week we lost uh, the absolutely iconic Sean Connery, the second James mm-hmm. Bond after Barry Nelson, who was in Casino Royale, the TV movie. Uh, he was also in a ton of other movies, Hunt for Red October. Uh, what else we got? We got Gabriel Gill and the Little People. Yeah, the Murder, uh, uh, the murder on the Orient Express. Oh. Um, Robin and Marion, Zardoz, the man who would be king, the name who would, uh, the name of the rose, far, entrapment, uh, first night, time bandits, time bandits, <laughs> oh, the time bandits that we had, Marnie, like he was in a ton mm-hmm. of movies. Most people knew him as James Bond because he was the one who made James Bond an iconic character. It was his macho swagger that made James Bond not just an action hero. Not just a franchisable character, but an icon. The sexy, sexy, sex symbol. Yeah, for the sexy, sexy <laughs> 60s, which were a sexy, sexy decade for many sexy, sexy films. Mostly due to Sean Connery. Largely due to Sean Connery. He certainly was. A, he certainly had a lot of that sex mm-hmm. in a lot of those James Bond movies. I, although I find if you actually rewatch a lot of those James Bond movies, it's not always good sex. No, uh, those early James Bond movies, like he, you said, he made the character iconic. Uh, I think he made the the character iconic almost in spite of the movies he was in. Because a lot of those early James Bond movies, the plots are kind of impenetrable. Mm -hmm. uh, And James Bond... It can be kind of slow. Like, Doctor No is a slow watch. Thunderball is insufferable. Neither of us are fans of Thunderball. That's (laughs) the truth. The entire climax of Thunderball takes place underwater, where everybody's moving slow and there's no sound. Yeah like well this is exciting isn't it but uh yeah sean connery had that glint in his eye even uh late into his career 
that uh, betrayed a kind of impish glee. Even when he was playing, playing kind of sort of dark or angry characters, he always w- had this just appealing manliness yeah. that drew your eye to him. Uh, and and I didn't discover uh, Sean Connery really. Like, I'd seen Sean Connery in a few movies, but he didn't really leap out at me until I saw Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. Luca, get off the counter, buddy. <laughs> very disrespectful, Luca. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade yeah. was the, the third Indiana Jones movie, and the gimmick in that film was that uh, Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford, was going to go on an adventure with his father, played yeah. by Sean Connery. And as a balance to uh, Harrison Ford's sort of hard-fisted swagger, uh, his dad was a little bit more of an intellect. He was a book-smart guy. Yeah, he was a nerd. Mm. And, and he, casting Sean Connery as a nerd was really funny, and he was surprisingly good at it. Mm-hmm. Like, he actually played it, he, he had this, like, he was like a stern taskmaster with his son, but in every other capacity, Aww. he was exactly the kind of history professor that, that Indiana Jones is technically supposed to be, except he's also out, like, punching Nazis and, like, threatening to blow up rare artifacts with the bazooka to make a point, like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Sean Connery was the real one, and that's the, ir- the irony, because Sean Connery is even bigger than Harrison Ford There's, ever was. Th- there was the, the bit, right when he first sees Harrison Ford the, in that movie, he smashes him over the head with a vase. Yeah. It's like, uh, oh, oh, it's it's my son. It's like, oh, my head is okay. Oh, thank God, look, the vase was a fake. Like, he doesn't I was care really about worried for a second, head, yeah. yeah. You can tell, because yeah, I broke it. You can tell in cross-section. <laughs> it's interesting to see all of these movies that like tried to like play off of Sean Connery's enormous, like, iconic celebrity in a funny way. Like, mm. you look at a movie you don't like, but Michael Bay's The Rock. Yeah. Where the whole plot of The Rock is that uh, a dweeby guy has to go on a uh, diehard mission on Alcatraz. And who is his partner? James Bond. Mm. James Bond was caught spying on America, and we've had him stuck in prison for the last, like, 40 years. <laughs> That's the gag. It's the at, whole movie. At, at Alcatraz, if I recall. For, for yeah. a while. I mean, that, then they closed Alcatraz. Oh, that's right. Somewhere they, else, they, but yeah. they had to break back into Alcatraz. Yeah, that's, that's the gag. Because bad guys had gas missiles. My favorite, my favorite late-era Sean Connery performance, though, is in a very bad movie, The Avengers. Because he gets to play, he gets to, to play, play the, the Bond J- villain, the James Bond villain in that one, and he yeah. gets to have like he gets to put on like a kilt and like speak to the United mm. Nations about how he's going to destroy the whole world with a weather machine. And he has, and I've talked about this a lot, but he has one of the greatest scenes in his entire filmography, mm. uh, where he does that speech to all of the other supervillains. You know, like you know that scene in Spectre where Christoph Waltz is like all in shadow and like oh. it's like ah, who will become our new lead assassin? And then um, uh, Drax the Destroyer comes in and like snaps a guy's neck, and it's like I guess. It's me like that kind of like mm. bad guy meaning except in the avengers sean connery and everyone else is wearing a pastel colored giant teddy bear suit and he's selling it <laughs> and it's seriously good for him it's it's a ridiculous film uh yeah. another uh film role of his that isn't getting a lot of mention in in uh, the obituaries is the man who would be king you have I, never I, seen it. Really? Never oh, it's, came it's up. really terrific. Yeah. It's based on a, a Rudyard Kipling novel about uh, these two colonialists who go on a, a you know, trip to find uh, a faraway country to find treasure. And the, it's this is the story you've probably heard of a lot before because it came from the Kipling novel about these two men who were mistaken for gods. Mm. And uh, they live it up, you know, completely willing to dupe some uh, faraway. Uh, natives that they are the the great white gods and they t- get all of the treasure and all of the food and they get coddled and they even get bri- or offered brides 
And then, of course, the moment of truth comes where his partner, Michael Caine, says, hey, you know what? This is really unethical, what we're doing. We can't, we're just going to sneak off in the night. We're going to take the treasure and we're going to go. And Sean Connery says, no, I think I'm going to stay. And uh, what happens thereafter is a big conflict. Is a very good movie. I think Michael Caine and Sean Connery play off of each other very well, and that might be a strength that uh, Sean Connery isn't rarely credited for because he was James Bond, yeah. a sort of lone character. He rarely gets credit as an actor for uh, the kind of chemistry he had with other actors. Yeah. I think he was really good with Michael Caine in The Man Who Would Be King. He was really good with Harrison Ford in, in Last Crusade. Very much so. Uh, I think he is able to—I'm not— Sure, if I could really compliment his chemistry with Nicolas Cage and The Rock, but that's just a big. They were fun. Stone. They're they're fine. They were but, fun. Know. That's all I'll say. Um, he had, he had a, lot, a great a chemistry with everyone on that boat in the Hunt for Red October. Well, he's good the, ensemble. He piece. was the commander, so right. Uh, but was Sam Neill was in there as well. There's a lot of good. Uh, Tim Curry as well. And that's a good. Mm. It's a good uh, ensemble piece. Um, uh, he's a, a great ensemble piece. The Untouchables. There you go. The Untouchables is one of yeah, my he, favorite movies. I he, love he that. And Kevin Costner have yeah, yeah. a few really good conversations. It's, a good dynamic. It's together. it's terrible history. They they take huge liberties with oh, everything absolutely. that happened <laughs> with Al Capone and Elliot Ness. But by God, is it a thrilling motion yeah, picture? Yeah. Brian De Palma just threw every technique he could possibly conceive at the wall, and they all stuck. And mm-hmm. it's really really great. I'll tell you a Sean Connery movie I'm a huge fan of that nobody talks about. Uh, Outland. Oh, it's a science fiction movie, right? It's High Noon in Space. Yeah. So I've not seen Outland. Outland's pretty cool. It stars Sean Connery, Peter Boyle, and Francis Sternhagen, who is one of those character actors who's fucking awesome and everything. And every time you see her, you go, yeah, this is going to be a great scene. <laughs> but she hardly ever gets a major role. And that's like the biggest role I've ever seen her have. But um, yeah, it's a Peter Hyams movie. And it's out in like a space station on like the far reaches of our solar system. And he's just waiting for the bad guys to show up. And when they do, there's going to be a shootout in space, like Jeez. on like a spacewalk and everything. And it's fucking cool. It's a cool flick. Um, he had an interesting taste in cinema. He would do these big Oscar-worthy type movies, but then he'd also do Zardoz. <laughs> Which is... What the hell is that? Um, Zard- One of the weirder movies, just it, period. Just, yeah, it is so bizarre. Yeah, Zardoz is a post-apocalyptic question mark movie where it's like the distant, distant future. He plays a, a loincloth wearing, uh, like, wild man who lives with a, like a tribe of horse guys who worship Zardoz. Zardoz is this gigantic floating stone head that spits out guns for them yep. to use in their combat. Like you do. He sneaks into Zardoz and Zardoz floats through the air and takes him back to a city where immortals dwell. Mm. And it's about the conflict between uh, this mortal wild man and the bored immortals that live inside. And it's just psychedelic and strange. So weird. Dude. It's not good. It's not a pleasant it's, experience, uh, no, but it's would, so strange. Would, you have to watch it. I would say it's pleasant. It's mm. not like fun and games, but mm. it's, yeah, it's so damn weird mm. that you're kind of riveted by it, even though at the end you're going to go, what the fuck did I just watch? <laughs> and you won't have a good answer. And neither will Zardoz. No, no. And this, and that was what, uh, Sean Connery decided to do. After he had retired from being James Bond. Yeah. It's like, I'm not going to play that role anymore. I'm going to start doing some other movies. Of course, he was doing other movies in between the James Bond flicks. Yeah, he was doing a lot of movies, yeah. Uh, But but that was the thing. It's like, will he have a career after he gives up this giant franchise? And it turns out, yeah, he had a really great career after that. (laughs) And then he actually ended up, and I want to go to bat for this, because I recently rewatched a lot of the James Bond movies. Hmm. And 
I want to go to bat. Just want to say, never say never again. The movie that he came back to Were in they, 1983. They they remade Thunderball. Yeah. There's a whole legal kerfuffle where basically the rights to the specifically the story Thunderball didn't technically belong to Eon for a while there. And another production company had the rights to make a James Bond movie, but only that one. Mm. And so they did. And they brought Connery back. It was directed by Irvin Kirshner, who, of course, directed uh, Robocop 2. <laughs> yes, Robocop 2. Oh. Also a little thing you may have heard of called Empire Strikes Back. But Robocop 2 is mostly the good Robocop one, yeah. 2 is the good one yes I understand uh but uh and and listen I'm gonna I'm gonna say this and this is gonna sound like like one of those like you know trolling hot takes better than Thunderball I think it's better than Thunderball. It's it's actually pretty sharp. There's a lot of really good action sequences in mm. it. There's also a lot of crap in it. It's a James Bond movie. They tend there's to be big old cr- messes. Even the good ones have crap in them. Uh, there's a couple where I would argue that maybe don't. Like the remake of Casino Royale, the second that, remake that of Casino Royale. Sharp, that probably. one's pretty consistent from beginning to end. But most of them, even the good ones, tend to have like a couple of weird bits or like a subplot that goes nowhere or an mm. unnecessarily complicated element. Uh, and Never Say Never Again is definitely one of those. But it plays better than you'd think and i remember hearing for many many years that it was one of those movies where it's just like oh he's so old i just couldn't buy it and now you see like sylvester stallone at age like what is he like 105 like it's like 74 or something but like he's yeah he's like he's like a septuagenarian and i'm not complaining good for him for staying in good health but like you you have these like elderly action heroes now And Sean Connery is like what fifty three in that movie. Like he looks fine. Yeah. He's doing great. Like it's actually. I'm just saying it's a pretty good movie. It's an underrated Connery flick. Other than that, what's your favorite Connery Bond film? Um, what is my favorite Connery Bond? Film? I mean, Goldfinger. That's that's the obvious answer. But I'm trying to think of something other that, other than Goldfinger. There's good stuff in Goldfinger, yeah. but it's hardly my favorite. Uh, I mean, it's it. I've I've said it this way, and I, other critics have put it this way before. It's it's the third James Bond film, but it's the first. It's, yeah, it's the, the one, one where they ev- got the formula. Ev- everything, yeah. The formula is finally just codified, and we get who James Bond is and what he does. That's how I feel about Fast mm-hmm. Five. There you go. There were four other Fast and Furious movies, and they're all pretty watchable, Mm. but the five is where they finally found the formula. Mm. Um, For me, I was actually, this is going to sound so fucking weird, because I fully admit that From Russia With Love is the better movie. Mm. Diamonds Are Forever is a shit ton of fun. <laughs> Diamonds are forever is a blast. <laughs> it's fun. It's a, there's a fucking there's a moon, scene there's in the movie. Buggy chase there's a scene in the movie forever. where Sean Connery is running from the bad guys and he runs into a place where they're faking the moon landing and he steals a moon buggy and like you know goes on a car chase in the desert. That's fun. <laughs> I don't care what anyone says. That is a hoot and a half. Uh, Sean Connery, we will miss thee. Uh, yeah. He uh, he. I, I think he didn't say that he had officially retired until many years after his last feature film, which was The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It was his last uh, live action li- feature. Li- I think he did a couple of voiceover works yeah, after yeah, that. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, it was he- his last lead anyway. Yeah. And um, he, uh, a lot of people were concerned because that movie is bad. It's quite bad. It's quite bad. Yeah. And, uh, and, it, it's, and I heard he only did it because he turned down the role of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. And he was like, oh, I should have done like the fun thing. The fun of this fantasy film. Yeah, and then he so just he picked a really bad one. <laughs> oh, and there's there's nothing inherently wrong with the premise. It's kind of silly. But the idea is a lot of famous characters from uh, adventure literature all exist in the same universe together. Yeah. So Captain Nemo and Tom Sawyer is a member of the CIA now. and uh, Which is... 
pretty thin. Yeah. Um, was it? There's actually there actually is some precedent yeah. for that. I guess he did like become like a like yeah. a cop in like later books or whatever. But oh, okay. it's pretty, yeah. that was not in the original story. Yeah, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, the Invisible Man, yeah. and um, Mina Harker. Mina Harker, from, who's from, the from Dracula. From Dracula, who yeah. became a vampire in this. She wasn't in the book, but yeah. she she is in the thing. And and, uh, yeah. and and Sean Connery plays Alan Quartermain. Which is actually a good casting. Yeah. Uh, and they all team up to stop marauding bad guys. Yeah. Again, fine, fun idea for a big, broad adventure film. Yeah. It just turned uh, out really bad. Yeah, it's like... Just... they, they It's one of those things where they clearly overthought it, and they're shoving in all these extra... Action sequences well, actual, don't make any sense. The actual source material for that is actually pretty dark and like mm. very like pulpy and violent. And they wanted to make like the PG thirteen yeah. kid friendly version, which and, which is possible, but which they is didn't possible, do it. But you know, kids movie. kids just love like nineteenth century literature. You know, like it's just I, not. I do. Well, I'm just yeah. saying it's like it's not necessarily the easiest right. sell, and they just kind of they just kind of whiffed it. It just yeah. seemed like there were too many cooks trying to trying yeah. to make a different stew. Mm. Yeah. But uh, yeah, a few years after he said, no, that's it. I'm done. And, you know, it's like, OK, I don't care that, that his last film was League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because he made 50 great movies before that. Right on. So uh, at, we and I haven't seen them all. So I still have many, yeah. uh, many great uh, Sean Connery performances waiting for me. I haven't seen Robin and Mary. And I haven't seen oh, yeah. Outland. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen Darby O'Gill and the Little People. The no only shit. film where he sings. Yeah, that's true. So, it's a good one. I yeah, like that movie. One, one of his first movies, like second or third movie he did. Yeah. Uh, I listen, Sean Connery. You, 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 he's one of those actors. You take him out of film history. Mm. Film history changes. Mm. Um, you read his interviews. Uh, he could be a shit, but. His performances were epic. His mm. impact was epic, and he was in a lot of really good movies. So and he, and he, he was a great Jeopardy star. <laughs> <laughs> he did very well on Jeopardy. I hear that he and Alex Trebek had a bit of a rivalry. Adorable. Hey, Sean Connery, rest in peace. Thank <laughs> rest you so in much peace, for, all Sean your, for all your work, Sir um, Sean Connery. Uh, but we're going to move on to our new releases. Whitney, what should we start with? Uh, hmm. We saw a lot of movies. Well, why don't we talk about Love and Monsters? That's like a studio film. Yeah, and it's also the one, that, the only one this week that we both saw mm-hmm. besides Alfie. Uh, Love and Monsters is a new science fiction. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure film. Yeah, and it plays like a YA film, but it's not based on a book, mm-hmm. which I was actually very surprised by because it feels so like well thought out. Like if you had told me there's like eight other stories with like a lot of other like mythology and everything, I would have been like, yeah, I'd buy it. But it's actually a totally original thing. Well, and, and it doesn't feel like a YA novel because it doesn't focus on uh, the sort of broody angst of the lead character. It is about his uh, relationship troubles. Mm-hmm. And uh, the joke is that he's more concerned with uh, proving himself as a, a romantic lead than he is about the extreme scenario around him. In fact, he introduces the world in this very flip fashion, which I haven't seen in movies in a long time. This sort of flip approach to really broad genre material. The basic premise of Love and Monsters is uh, there was a giant asteroid coming towards Earth, and so we threw all of the nuclear bombs. We threw every nuclear weapon we had on the planet at it, and good news, it blew up the asteroid. Bad news is the nuclear fallout mutated every cold-blooded animal into a giant monster, and that includes... (laughs) reptiles amphibians fish crabs and bugs like all of them became gigantic man-eating monsters and they just instantly started eating mankind and mankind started retreating into underground bunkers and it's been seven years now and everyone's getting a little stir crazy and he's the only person in his bunker who a doesn't have a meaningful task to do and b 
doesn't have a significant other. Yeah, Th- and that that's what bothers him the most. Yeah, not, not that you know, there's there's no sadness to this scenario. He's like, actually pretty bright about it. It's like a ninety five percent of the human population is gone, and oh god, I wish I had a girlfriend. And yeah, it's, it's but it's it's light. It's very funny. Uh, the only and, thing I can do in this bunker is cook minestrone. Yeah, it's really, not even that good. He's really good <laughs> at making minestrone soup. That's what he's known for. And he has a good relationship with the cow. Yeah, that they use for milk. That's it. And that's kind of it. Uh, and he is completely hung up on uh, seven years ago when this all the, this mess first broke out is he had one romantic evening in a car with uh, a potential girlfriend of his. Yeah, a girl named Amy. Yeah, yeah, Amy. And he has been thinking about Amy for the last seven years. He recently made radio contact with Amy, who's in another bunker. like uh, 80 miles like, away. Yeah, 80 miles away. It's like a week, a week walk away. And uh, so he starts to think again, well, you look, I'm not needed. I'm clearly not needed here. Uh, a monster breaks in and I got no fighting skills. I'm not the badass as you guys are of like crossbows and wrist rockets and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to take a few uh, few weapons and go out on the surface. Everybody says, well, you're fucked, but OK. No, but you know what they actually do is they try to talk him out of it because mm-hmm. here's the thing. Even though he's not useful. Oh, even though he doesn't really have a place, like a, a formal place in their like colony, they do like him. Mm. This isn't one of those things where like people are arbitrarily mean to each other because that's just the tone of it, and that can work. But here, everyone's actually like pretty friendly and loving. It's like, no, we can't, we can't lose Joel. We love Joel. <laughs> Joel's a nice guy. Joel's a really nice guy, and he and he cooks minestrone and. He's pretty good with a radio. Uh, okay, listen, we don't really have much of an argument, but like, we really think you will die out there yeah. because you're not really good in a fight either. So we we just think you should stay because we love you, Joel. And he's Joel. like, I love you too, but I just I don't have a place here, and I need yeah. to spread my wings and fly. And yeah, so Joel, he... Joel was played by Dylan O'Brien from those uh, those awful Maze Runner movies. Oh, I like those movies. I like awful. the first two are fun. The first two are fun. I will I will stand by the first two as solid. Three star action movie sci fi fantasy. Th- those, those movies make no sense whatsoever. No, they don't. Yeah. No, they don't. I will not pretend they make sense, but they are fun. Nothing about the, the premise or the setup. There's I think no it, tension because it's I, just completely I really bonkers. Lo- no, I really love. I I like the the sort of like previously on Lost like tone the first one has, <laughs> and I like. The, I actually really really like the way that I think it's Wes Ball directs the second one, mm. in that he actually has a really good eye for action sequences. I no, do think the action sequences are pretty like exciting yeah, and giant. Fun, and intense. Uh, there's a fun sequence where uh, they're trying to crawl uh, like horizontally across a felled building that's like dangling over a precipice. yeah it's really that cool pretty cool there's some cool stuff in uh, the first two the third one gets I've, a little but incomprehensible the, but yeah. my point being is as a lead in those kinds of ya movies uh he just sort of disappears into the material he just yeah. has to be resolute lead who occasionally gets outraged like he doesn't have a lot to act with yeah here he's actually playing a little bit more of a character he's a little bit more funny he actually has a little bit more of an attitude and a point of view which is uh welcome Mm -hmm. he travels out onto the surface and has post-apocalyptic adventures he runs into giant frogs and centipedes Mm -hmm. he falls in with some other people who are living on the surface who teach him valuable skills on how to survive played by Michael Rooker who is of course great he's Michael Rooker Mm -hmm. uh it's Free of the kind of comic cynicism that you might see in a zombie land, which yeah. is uh, a really kind of a bitter film on a lot of levels, especially yeah. that second movie. Yeah, everything's uh, everything's gone to shit, and mm-hmm. well, that's fun, isn't it? Well, yeah. no, actually, it's it is kind of sad that the world was destroyed, mm-hmm. but this is about building yourself back up again afterwards mm-hmm. through positivity. Yeah. Uh, 
and and eventually, you know, the plot continues apace. But the uh, plot never gets like stupid, complicated, or no, crazy no, in no, mythology. No, it's, it's actually it never becomes straightforward it, and fun. I, I'm gonna say this: none of the ideas presented in Love and Monsters are truly novel. But what yeah. what Love and Monsters does, it does perfectly. All of the 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 stops and the adventures all have a different tone and mm-hmm. a different pace and a different set of skills and a different visual mm. dynamic. The different all monsters the, are all really cool the, the, looking. The monster design is really great. All of the characters they run into are interesting characters played mm. by interesting actors who actually have interesting things to say. Mm-hmm. There's a segment where he stops and talks to a robot that I adore. Oh my god, wasn't that heartbreaking? <laughs> There's a bit There's, where he finds like a robot who's like, like bas- it has 50 minutes of battery life left before it just dies entirely, but it's a servant robot yeah it's, so it's, it's like really, an alexa basically yeah so yeah. It, it's so it's this really friendly thing that's just trying to help him even though it's like gonna die in like less than an hour it's actually a really tender sad it's, sweet it's, moment and they actually is important to the story because mm-hmm. it really helps him like get through his baggage and stuff mm-hmm. but you also really do love the robot mm-hmm. too and <laughs> and when and the resolution of the story i was actually like there's, i, there's I a, saw this at a drive-in Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, my wife and partner Michelle, we went for our anniversary, and we had a theory. We were just like, "Listen, the drive-in isn't where you go to for a great movie. Drive-in's where you go to for like a schlock, kind of, yeah. for like for a schlock movie." And so we picked Love and Monsters because it looked really schlocky. And then we got five minutes into it, and we're like, "Shit, this is really good. This is good. I mean, it's yeah. it's, it's a schlock premise, but it's a like, it's we were, a really good schlock. Like, we were we were ready to just sort of you know throw popcorn or whatever like that, and we were just like, "No, we're just engaged and engrossed <laughs> in this, and we just really <laughs> fell in love with the movie." Yeah, yeah, this. Um, this isn't like best best film of the year type material. I know. Uh, I know you really like it. I think. But, here's uh, the deal. This isn't mean. This is not going to be one of the most important movies of the year because uh, it can't be. There are already way more important movies. This is one of the best put together genre films I've seen so far yeah, this, this year, and this, that's a, that's an accomplishment in and of itself. This is a solidly just a four star film. Yeah. It, it's it's a, a well worn genre, but it's rare. That we get this type of skill put into it. Yeah, the humor, creativity, mm. uh, imagination. It, it almost it, has an Amblin vibe yeah, to it in a it lot really of ways. Does. But... I, I just totally fell in love with this movie. Mm. And, you know, obviously a lot of movies this year are getting just overlooked or shunted because of mm. COVID. And this is one of the ones where I suspect that even in a normal year, this probably would have come and gone. It probably would have gotten okay reviews. And then done okay in theaters or maybe underperformed. And then no one would talk about it for five years. And mm-hmm. then I would be championing it the way I do something like Real Steel or something. And I'm like, this it's is kind of funny really you good. Me- you mentioned Real Steel. Sean Levy, the director of Real Steel, produced this. Which is so, weird. Uh... I, I, Sean Levy is this weird filmmaker where he makes these really generic family comedies. And occasionally he'll do like Pink Panther 1, which is actually really funny mm-hmm. in spite of itself. But mostly yeah. they're bad movies. Nobody believes us. That first Pink Panther movie is pretty good. It's, it's pretty it's funny. Way better than some of those ones without Peter Sellers. That's totally uh, true. I will. De- I'm dead serious. If you were to rank the Pink Panther movies, that Sean Levy remake would be in like at least the top five or six. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty good. Um, but yeah, he makes all these comedies that I just go, eh. and then he made Real Steel, which I. Fucking love. He has a really good sensibility for family-friendly sci-fi. And he didn't direct this one. This was directed by Michael Matthews, but he did produce it, and it does seem to be a through line, so maybe he had something to do with that. Either way, this Michael Matthews individual... He uh, previously did a film I haven't heard of called Five Fingers for for Marseille. Yeah, which is a South Uh, African Western. mm -hmm. Um, And he's... 
got other stuff he's doing now. I I want to see more from this filmmaker because mm. what a deft sense of tone. What a nice what he uh, he's got a great way with visual effects in that he's not actually like cutting around him a lot. He's letting you enjoy the spectacle. Yeah, and that's something yeah. that's so rare and it makes his films feel so much bigger than it is. Cause it's mm. probably not that expensive a movie mm. compared to a lot of other films that are trying to vie for blockbuster status. Yeah. This, the, the, it's, it's, it's slick within a budget and mm. I appreciate that. It's the kind of mid budget, adventure film that has inspired a lot of uh, this generation to make even bigger adventure films. And, exactly. I, and the irony is that the bigger adventure films that are being made don't, ha- because so many of them are well moneyed and have these gigantic production values mm. are missing that sense of awe. There's no dazzle to a lot of these movies. You watch something like Avengers Endgame, which is what? 80% digital effects. Yeah. And I'm not wowed by the special effects. Like they seem almost Not a lot of the time. yeah they like I understand like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people worked countless backbreaking hours to make sure these things look good and they do look good Amazing they're one hundred percent convincing yeah. but they don't they're not presented in a way that makes me look at the screen and say wow that is a cool visual they're how did they not, do that sort of with thing? the exception of like that big giant fight at the end where they have some cool shots they're mm-hmm. kind of trying. Not to dazzle you a lot of the time. Yeah, they're and trying to make fact, it all these extraordinary things seem kind of common. The most impressive visual effect I saw in that whole movie, I didn't even realize was a visual effect until I saw like a making of thing. Mm. Um, when they go back in time, when they have their like time travel suits, mm. uh, they didn't know what those suits were going to look like. So they're all wearing mm-hmm. green screen suits yeah, and all suits. of their clothing is CG. And I'm like, you know what? I never would have thought. I couldn't that tell looks, that. Yeah. That's really impeccable. I'm very impressed, but it doesn't dazzle mm. the way that something like Love and Monsters does because there's a sense of grandeur to mm, the monsters we... because there's also a sense of scale. There's stuff that isn't grand. To go yeah, along the, with it, the the scene where the frog comes up out of the That's pool is cool, really creepy. Man. That that I was creeped the heck out by that giant centipede thing. Ah, oh, I was creepy as and, hell. Yeah, and then there's a, a fight with a gigantic crab, which is pretty cool. Really as super well. cool. There, no, it's, the, the, it's just a cool movie. There is there is an action climax, and a, the, the, some of the fighting got a little tiresome. But, but you know, I, I do like I, that it plays it, into it, this idea that. Uh, the main character is a little bit insecure when presented uh, with like more manly archetypes who would do that kind of fighting stuff. But I do like that mm. the way it resolved ended up having less to do with fighting mm. and more to do with compassion. Compassion, yeah, yeah. and that's great. You got to have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's really not a lot I can say negative about this movie. I just love this movie. I hope people see this movie. Yeah. This is exactly the kind of fun genre film that like seriously pulled me out of the horrifying miasma of 2020 for however long it was hour and a half two hours and i just had a wonderful time and i just highly recommend it and do not miss it it's really great um let's move on you mentioned that this movie has kind of an amblin vibe so let's talk hmm. about the amblin movie that came out the actual amblin movie okay. there's an actual amblin uh, pictures movie that came out this week it's called come play was going to be a theatrical release, and then I think it actually is a theatrical release, but it's also, I think, on VOD. Um, oh, no, it was, it was only uh, theatrically released. Yeah, Sorry. I, I, was I, able I was to actually, say, I was looking for this one. I, I was able see to see online, a digital yeah. screener because they sent me one. Thank yeah. you for that. But, uh, yeah, so this is uh, based on a short film. It's directed by Jacob Chase, and it stars Jillian Jacobs from Community and John Gallagher Jr. from, um, uh, he was in that film. 
Oh, that one. Uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. He was oh, also okay. on the newsroom. Uh, and they are the parents of an autistic boy who has become targeted by a monster. Okay. Now, here's the deal. This monster lives in, like, a, a dimension, like, right next to ours. Hmm. So it can see us, but it can't interact with us. But as we have invented, like, various technologies, it started to be able to, like, see, like, through electricity through screens and it's it's looking at us <laughs> through every screen that we have our phones our computers our TVs as if they're windows and okay. that's a creepy thought well especially you know during lockdown when we're consuming most of our media that way yeah. anyway no yeah. this movie was made before lockdown yeah. and it isn't about lockdown that probably would have been a really terrifying mm-hmm. adjunct to it but the idea is here's this child this child is misunderstood this child has no friends to speak of his mm-hmm. parents are you know they're working class people who love their son but are also really frustrated and they're not actually being very good parents uh and as a result their child is targeted by and you can look at this as a metaphor for some creep on the internet mm-hmm. or you can look at it literally as just a monster uh, and, um, uh, yeah. And the monster starts scaring the kid and trying to get the kid. And the monster's name is Larry. Larry. The, yeah. The monster is named Larry. Larry. Just Larry. Cancer. My name is Larry. Yeah. And, uh, Larry is, uh, Larry is, uh, Larry wants a friend and he will drag that kid into hell through his, uh, iPad screen to do it. Um, that's a pretty good premise for. A horror movie, hmm. a, mo- uh, a monster that attacks you through TV screens. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. It's, it's you, you know. Ever see that movie, Ghost in the Shell. See, here's the, the thing: serial killer that became electricity and could activate widgets. Problem is, there's actually quite a few movies that have that feel like this. Yeah. One Lawnmower of them, Man, as well. Well, well, that's just the tech version, hmm. and the tech actually isn't that important to it. It's just kind of the gimmick. Okay, it's not like tech based where they have to hack the monster oh, in order to win or anything like that. There, there are. There's not. Uh, Glyphs hidden in the code. No, okay. Sadly, it's not friend request. But <laughs> or or what was the other one that did that? Um, countdown. Count, countdown. Yeah, did countdown. The same thing. In, yeah. in the app, there's like spells hidden inside the code. You know, like you do. Those movies are so stupid. How did that get past the Apple App Store? How do they? Count Countdown is like weirdly watchable. Friend yeah. request is like oh, watch it because it's so bad. It's so bad. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So this isn't a tech thriller. It just uses tech as like a metaphor for. Uh, parental anxieties about children who are being preyed upon. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but yeah, my th- one of the big problems with this movie is that it re- feels really similar to a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels similar to Mama. It feels similar to Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Any movie where there's a child at threat and the mom has got to do something about it and prove her love, but maybe it'll involve, like, fighting a monster or whatever like that and this sort of fairy tale modern-day mentality... It's that. It's also okay. lights out because mm. you know here it's got a it's a monster with a gimmick. Well, as, and... as those films go, though, how does it compare? <sighs> okay, like it's it's fine. Mm. That's about where I'm at. It's it's actually frustratingly mediocre. Like every every like character in it is okay. The mom played by Jillian Jacobs is the heaviest sleeper I've seen in a horror movie in a while. <laughs> like, on multiple occasions in, like, the first half of this movie, like, the kid wakes up, and he's, like, he's got the, one of those, like, little stretchy hand things that are made out of, like, jelly, and, like, you thwap them at a wall, and they stick to the wall. 
It'd make mm. a loud noise and you sp- and it springs back into your hand. Oh. You know what I'm talking about? You buy him for like a dollar at like a vending machine at a carnival. Um, he's got those and he's just whapping that sucker everywhere. She's sleeping right through it. Monsters attacking him. She's sleeping right through it. Later on in the film, there's a sleepover because she's trying to like get kids over to like interact mm. with her kid. And they're like yelling at him and bullying him and stealing his iPad, which he already knows is haunted. So he's trying to get him not to do it, but he's nonverbal. Mm. So he can't really convey to them that this, they're, they're playing with hellish fire. And uh, then they all get attacked by the monster and she's still sleeping. <laughs> like, what did you, did you take an ambient? Yeah. Like, you got to watch these kids. You got to, what are you doing? No, <laughs> it's a terrible parenting. My God, um, so that's one of those. That's a really, really frustrating thing. It's also interesting because we're at this interesting phase where, you know, when like pre-existing non-scary media starts getting co-opted by horror movies and turned into something creepy, like yeah. um, all those like really feel-good songs that play in the car, Christine. But mm. when Christine plays them, they play. She plays them like, well, she's asphyxiating someone in the car right. or whatever. Okay, uh, this movie. I love a good ironic music here. Yeah, this movie is trying to do that, but for SpongeBob SquarePants episodes on streaming. Oh, mm. so like SpongeBob will like turn to the camera and say, ah, "I'm gonna kill, you. I'm gonna kill you." No, he doesn't quite do yeah. that, but like they'll play like clips from the episodes that are like appropriate to the moment. Like SpongeBob, like right. he walks past the screen with SpongeBob playing, and SpongeBob's eyes like follow him or whatever. But it's just from the episode, hmm. and. It, they there, almost get away with it. I, I wonder if I grew up with SpongeBob, if I'd find that creepy or not. I honestly don't know. It's well, after if, my time. If they were doing that with like a lot of media, and the idea that the media you're consuming is that like the, you stare into the abyss and it stares back into you, could be this interesting comment on media and the, you know, the way we consume it. If they were doing that, and they don't quite though. Like if they the roll with that a lot. I kind of wish they had had the fortitude. Mm. To just commit to that and make like SpongeBob a, a evil of, here, or, or just you know, assemble a bunch of clips from kids programming where it starts to say weird things. Well, because that's what kids forth. programming is. It's basically yeah. becoming your friend. It's actually like saying mm. it's Mr. Rogers saying, "Hey, won't you be my neighbor?" Like that's you could have totally subverted that and made that super creepy. And they kind of touch upon it, but they don't get there, mm. and that's kind of frustrating. And ultimately, the movie just. Is okay. Yeah, I, I was really hoping this would be a real treat because you know the it's premise is yeah. the premise is pretty solid. There's some good shots in there somewhere, but it's just so like it's constructed in such a way that it feels it's almost like when you're watching like Super Eight. You know, okay. Like when you're watching Super Eight and it's fine, mm. but you also know that this is just a pretty good copy of Alien. Of, 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 of E.T. Of E.T., yeah. Sorry, yeah. But, like, you know, it's like, okay, so someone loves E.T., and someone could probably do a pretty good E.T., but they didn't try to do anything but a pretty good E.T. Yeah. And that's kind of what I got from Come Play. It's like, I saw mm. all these other horror movies. I wanted to do a rock-solid rendition that never actually became its own thing. Yeah. There's one scary-ass shot towards the end of this movie, <laughs> which is legitimately frightening. Mm. And everything else in it is just kind of okay. Yeah. Um, it's it's actually middle of the road pretty much from beginning to end. I was a little disappointed in it. Oh, that's too bad. All right. Uh, let's those, go those, are the most frust- those are the most frustrating films to talk about just because yeah. there's nothing to say about them. I, I'm totally with you. Mm. Why don't you tell me the story of The True Adventures of Wolf Boy? The True Adventures of Wolf Boy uh, is... Uh, it is based on a YA novel. Oh. Um, it's... Uh, I'm unfamiliar with this one. 
Or is it based? Is, actually, it's you know what? It's actually not based on an Hawaiian. <laughs> Nothing novel. is based on a Hawaiian um, novel but, anymore. But good golly, it sure feels like it. It is about a boy who's about thirteen years old, and he has hypertrichosis. Uh, that's a condition where you're uh, you're born with body hair, and you have body hair all over your body, even on your face. Yeah. Um, and he wears a ski mask because he's embarrassed of his condition. And his his single dad takes him out into public and says, you know, the thing is, you just need to sort of be confident, move with confidence in the world. It doesn't really matter that you have hair on your face. Just talk to other people. Try to ignore that they're staring at you. And in the opening scene, he tries that and it goes horribly awry. Some people stare at him. Some kids chase him away and accost him in a porta potty. So he's not living his a very happy life. His dad is a really good dad. He, try, he tries to give him confidence. He's very understanding. Mm-hmm. He communicates with him very openly. Mm-hmm. He tries to be very casual and fun and flip and kind of friendly at all, all times. And he says, I understand that you're having a tough time of it. I found a school for kids with sort of conditions that you will not be mocked here. You will get a really good education here. And the kid throws it all back in his face and says, I'm going to run away. And he runs away. I'm going to go look for my long missing mom. Um... And it, they play his journey as if it's this big fable. So every uh, chapter in his life has uh, this kind of uh, chapter introduction where he gets a big yeah. illustration. Wolf boy head, takes to his chariot and heads out onto the road. And it once that begins, it becomes really kind of overproduction design in the Tim Burton sort of way, where ah. everything's really kind of glittery and buildings look a little strange. Wolf boy meets a mermaid and he meets a young girl who's about his age who's swimming in a uh, little uh, inflatable pool outside of her home oh, okay. and uh, it, it turns out her mom was a little bit abusive and shaved her head one night because her hair was too long and uh it's not a little bit abusive that's abusive that's abusive yeah. um i say a little bit abusive because later on they murder her whoa this is after wolf boy uh goes to john Turturro, who uh, owns the local carnival and says hey I could use you in my carnival. I got a sideshow. I'll put you in a cage. You can growl at people. It'll be a lot of fun. You'll make a lot of money. And he says, okay. And then he steals all of John Turturro's money and burns down the entire carnival. What's the tone here? I don't know. That's the problem here. It's going for this whimsical kind of uh, tone where it's looking at a lot of adolescent angst through all of these little bizarre fantasy uh, edges. And I could see something like something like this coming from Tim Burton. So you yeah. look at something like Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. What's the tone of Edward Scissorhands? It's this weird sort of urban... It's a fable. Yeah, it's a suburban fable yeah. in, in a way. It's going for that vibe. Uh, the problem is... And good golly, I loathe this movie. <laughs> oh my uh, God. It's, it's going... F- it's sort of glorifying a very tiny window of teen angst... And trying to say that you are permitted to commit all kinds of horrible acts if you feel that the world is against you. Oh, that's not good. So Wolf Boy and his and his uh, companion, he, he you know picks up some other companions and then loses them along his journey on his way to find his mother. His mother is played by Chloe Sevigny. Uh, it's trying to forgive him all of these horrible things that he's doing. Uh, as uh, an excuse, like it's trying to excuse him as just sort of he's feeling all of this pain, so it's okay that he's committing all of these crimes and doing all of these horrible things, right? And he's not learning any kind of lesson. I don't think he's really going on a journey. He's not learning to grow up. He's not 
learning to find friends along the way. It's not the whole, that the journey was the whole point. No, the destination was the point. Yeah. And who he meets at his destination and the conversations they have. And when he finally goes back to his dad, the cop is like, no, you committed arson (laughs) and you crossed state lines and you robbed liquor stores and, and you killed that one lady. I think they never go back to that. Oh, great. You burned down John Torturo's carnival. So he's on the road after you. And then you get to confront him and you get to beat him up and leave him for dead. And that's okay. This is like Badlands via the weekly world news. It's, it's like the doom generation as if it was done by Tim Burton. It sounds like a good pitch on paper. (laughs) But it it has that kind of schmaltzy, uh, really romantic feeling to it. um, Something I complain about a lot about the Twilight movies Mm. is that it takes something that's actually really unhealthy about teenage views of relationships and glorifies them writ large. Mm. That sort of addiction to death and everything needs to be forever permanent. It's not about relating to each other as human beings. It's about keeping your love pure and twilight taps like zeros in on that and expands it into a bunch of books and movies. And I don't think that's necessarily a healthy thing to celebrate. Mm. I feel the same way about Wolf Boy. This is about a very specific kind of angst about feeling like an outsider about wanting to lash out at the world and giving Maybe some of the young people watching this really unhealthy outlet uh, that they get to harm everybody. Uh, it also doesn't help that the lead actor is kind of implacable. Like he's really sort of shy and, and shrinks away in a lot of scenes. But in other scenes, he's just really angry and and flashes out at people like his, again, he's 13. I understand that he's sort of in emotional turmoil, but he never sort of emerges as a whole character. He's just this sort of avatar. Um, I was watching this movie, just watching scene after scene of this angst being celebrated in these really immature fantasy trappings and just hating it more and more as each minute elapsed. Sounds awful. Yeah. It was really, really awful. Uh, It's directed by a Czech director. Um, His name is Martin. I'm going to butcher this. Krejci. Okay. And from what I understand, uh, he's done a lot of really interesting stuff uh, in his home country. Okay. Uh, but uh, I haven't seen any of those movies, so I can't really say. Fair enough. Uh, what I'm seeing here is somebody who has a good mastery of photography and design, who is trying to tell a really unusual story, but is completely whiffing it on every possible level. That sucks. Yeah. So I'm kind of glad I saw it because now I got something to put on my worst films of the year. Yay. Um, oh, I, and I, I might be on the outside on this because I was trying to find some sort of consensus. You know, it's just mm-hmm. not not reading other reviews. Well, there are a lot of people who really like that. A lot of people really like this Weird. one. They're kind of reacting yeah. to how emotionally disarming it is and how odd it is. And it is disarming and odd, but it's also just gross, brazenly irresponsible and insufferably adolescent. Put that on the poster. <laughs> Well, let's move on. Mm. Let's move on to another film about uh, uh, teen Teen angst. angst. Uh, Let's talk about The Craft Legacy. The Craft Legacy is a... It's a sequel, but it follows... Sequel remake. Well, the term I've heard people try to use, and I know you're going to roll your eyes, 
a requel, which is a sequel, which is technically taking place after the original, but it's basically doing the same story again and like starting it all over. Escape from LA, the thing. Yeah. 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 Basically the same Mm -hmm. thing, but technically takes place before or after the original. Uh, The Craft Legacy takes place after the 1996 uh, cult teen horror film, The Craft. Uh, which was huge when it came out. Didn't make a shit ton of money. It was it was big. It was when a it hit. Came out. Yeah. It was a hit, but it was a hit in that it made like fifty five million dollars and it cost like fifteen. That was mm. pretty good for like a cult teen horror movie in the mid nineties. If you've never seen it, uh, it stars Robin Tunney, Feroza Balk, Rachel True, and Nev Campbell as a coven of teenage witches. They are all outcasts who find each other and they decide to pursue. Uh, witchcraft very very seriously and what they discover is that they actually when they combine their energies have actual superpowers and so they lash out at all the people who bullied them and they end up becoming some of them anyway becoming as bad as the people who tortured them or worse uh it is a fun movie uh it really uh, it's one of the few films of the time to really truly i think tap into uh, the goth feminist wave that was taking place in a lot of high schools around the country. It certainly wasn't mine. Um, if if, if Lilifair coughed and that cough became a movie, yeah, it would be the craft. And 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 it's it's very very popular with a lot of people from my generation. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that I'm actually shocked, it never had any sequels. This feels like the sort of thing where we would have had at least a couple of straight to video sequels by now. Like we had two straight to video sequels to the skulls. It wasn't why, that. Why, well, that why, that's why, true. Why, the, why not the craft? It's cheap. It's the, a bunch of people being witches in high school. How hard is this? Yeah, the skulls didn't deserve its sequels, and no. that was kind of an odd one to, to tap into. The, the craft didn't lend itself well to sequels. The story kind of ended. It, the, the story is. Who cares about the story? It's witches in high school. That's the only connective tissue you need. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised it didn't turn into a TV series in like 2003. Well, it kind of uh, did. Charmed was basically the craft of the I, series yeah, I guess in a lot right. of ways. Um, yeah, the, but uh, it was a big, big deal. A lot of people really, really loved it. I've also heard some backlash against it, and I actually see why. If you look at the film kind of closely, a lot of its attempts at, at sort of uh, to sort of convey empowerment are kind of not very well thought out. When you think about it from the, as a story of three young women, a black woman who's uh, suffered from racism at her school, uh, a, a woman who is incredibly, a young woman who's incredibly poor and is suffering uh, from like abuse from her father and is incredibly unhappy because of various class issues. And then Nev Campbell is obviously going through a series of mental health issues. She's scarred. She's, they're all going through a lot and they're all legitimately Mm. Uh, uh, oppressed in one way or another. And then Robin Tunney is a rich white person who comes in and it turns out that she's the only one with actual power and all of the other people only become empowered by like Mm. being in her proximity. (laughs) And that's kind of weird and that Mm. doesn't work. But like on its surface, there's a lot of cool stuff in it and it ends in one of the most epic like horror movie final fights ever. Like it's really fucking cool. Mm. So it's fun to watch. Uh, but there was, I feel like there was room for improvement. I feel like there was room to take the concept and do something even stronger with it. Yeah, it's, it's more cool than it is good. Uh, it's it, not the greatest screenplay. I do appreciate that it tapped into goth subculture. Um, Furza yeah. Balk in that movie has become a goth icon. Very much so. Uh, just Not just because of her look, but because of her attitude. And The Craft came out at a time when... Uh, and this was mocked relentlessly as while at the same time it was being celebrated, a lot of younger people longed to be outsiders. 
they saw they looked at the mainstream and they saw BS. And I feel like bringing the craft back now in 2020, when the dynamic is sort of flipped, doesn't seem like the wisest move. Well, on that level, it doesn't. But mm. I will say that there are a lot of things that could definitely be tapped into for this mm. one. And whether or not they do is... Um, well, tell me. <laughs> okay, so the new version, The Craft Legacy, uh, written and directed by Zoe Lister-Jones, uh, stars Kaylee Spaney, Gideon Adlin, Lovey Simone, and Zoe Luna as a new mm. uh, coven of teenage witches. Um, mm. Kaylee Spaney uh, is moving into town uh, with her mother, Michelle Monaghan. Mm. Uh, Michelle Monaghan is marrying David Duchovny, who is... Who writes books about preserving modern masculinity and holds seminars about preserving modern masculinity and mm-hmm. has like weird rituals with spirit sticks about like, okay, we're all gonna pass the spirit stick around and talk about how macho we are. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. Uh <laughs> subtle. Okay. She's she's new in town and she uh meets up with these three cool girls who are trying to be witches, and they realize that with this new girl in town. They can actually do cool witch stuff, like read each other's thoughts and lift things with their minds and freeze time. Mm -hmm. And so everyone's like, cool. And so they do that. And then they do that for a bit. And then it turns out there's this one really shitty guy. Uh, The Skeet Ulrich of the film, if you will. (laughs) And in the the original craft, they actually decide to make Skeet Ulrich like fall in love with Robin Tunney. Yeah, she like casts a love spell. Yeah, to make him like her puppy dog, like, Hmm. because he was really shit. And uh, in this new one... They decide to make him the best version of himself. And so he so what they do very, is they very diplomatic of them. Okay. They they break into his house mm. and they they need like something personal of him. They find a used condom and they manage Aww. to mix it with his bong and some rose quartz. The rose quartz makes it fun. And uh, they they do a ritual that will make him like basically become enlightened, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden he's the coolest guy in school, and he's actually like really supportive of everybody, and he wants to hang out with all the kids who didn't seem cool before, and he's totally feminist and awesome now, and everyone really fucking loves him. And this is half the film. It's just improve like this guy. This guy cool. to improve the and, world, and like technically right. they took away his free will, but also he's so cool now. Mm-hmm. And it's just, oh, okay. And then, like, and I'm going to... Here's the thing with this movie. There's not a lot of plot, so I have to take you a bit further into it than I normally would. So this is not a story about how they are empowered themselves, but how they turn a guy into a cool guy? There's a montage where they do fun stuff with their powers, like Mm -hmm. someone, like, graffito tags their locker Mm -hmm. and says that they're like, wow, this person really likes sex, but in Mm -hmm. different terminology. And so she, like, the (laughs) one... Why, yes, I do love sex. One of them actually, like, puts, like sets her finger on fire and like melts it off the locker and goes, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, look, teen, that's teen fine. Witch did more than that. And that's the feel that this feels more like, <laughs> it feels like for, teen witch. for about oh, two God. thirds of this movie. This feels like teen witch. Now, if you've never seen teen witch, teen witch is a delight. Teen witch is a very mm. wonderful, silly film. Teen witch was made. I, I know the screenwriter of teen witch. Oh, do you really yeah, yeah, tell them they're awesome. Um, so teen witch is a 1989 film. Uh, starring Robin Lively and Zelda Rubenstein, and it's basically uh, turns out some 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 young women when they reach a certain age, turns out they become witches. What does that mean? They're gods. Okay, they can do literally whatever the fuck they want, and so she, <laughs> including make up rap battles. There's a rap battle. 
there's a lot of there's like you know taking the cool guy to school or whatever like that and like the, the prom and shit and but she really, uses her powers to become more popular hence the theme song i'm yeah. gonna be the most popular girl i wanna be the most popular yeah. oh, girl whatever you think about teen witch that song will lodge itself into your brain i didn't see teen witch when it because i don't know how it flew under my radar i was totally watching films like that when this movie came out but mm. I didn't see Teen Witch until I was like in my 20s. And then I was like, where the fuck was this movie when I was like seven when it came out? I would have watched the shit out of this movie. It's a very fun film. It's almost completely plotless. Like it barely bothers having a plot. It's just teen power fantasy. Hmm. That's fine too. But for like two thirds of this movie, that's just what it is. It's a bunch of, of nice, reasonably decent young women get superpowers. They do one thing that's like kind of shitty, but they've also completely improved this guy. So maybe there's a convert. They do eventually have a conversation about the ethics of that, but it doesn't Uh. go very far. And because, and this would normally be the plot point, like halfway through the film, but it's like two thirds of the way through the film. Hmm. But I'm going to tell you this. All right. And if you don't want to know about it, skip ahead. There's time codes in the description of the episode. Uh, Then all of a sudden off camera, that guy kills himself. What? Yeah, and they're and they're starting to feel like, oh my god, did we do that? Mm. Oh my god, are we horrible people? Was he screaming from inside this body yeah. they put him in the, inside what, of? What and, do, yeah. they, and they don't know, and all of them behave very responsibly about it. And you know, if if you're being so responsible, you're losing a little bit of the edge of what a power fantasy is. That's kind of that's kind of what they're doing here, and then it all turns out there's a series of twists or whatever, which frankly, are really fucking obvious. Mm. And that it all ends with a magic fight in which people stand at opposite ends of a field and shove CGI at each other. Mm. Which, stop doing that! That's bad writing. It's just bad writing. Okay? They're witches. Turn shit into snakes. Transmogrify people. Like, fly. Like, there's so many cool things you could do, even on a budget. Mm. The original The Craft was not an expensive film. And they did cooler things with witchcraft than this. So that's very, very frustrating that it all ends up not really exploring the whole men's rights activist angle very well at all, Mm. really missing a lot of opportunities to turn that into a thing. Um, And yeah, the characters, I feel like there was this attempt to make the protagonists, the actual coven, Mm. actual positive characters, which is not the worst thing in the world, but you actually have to give them something to do to overcome, to evolve in, and they don't. Hmm. In the original version of The Craft, which is a different movie in a lot of ways, but we actually got to see all different members of this coven. Uh, uh, Rachel True, Nev hmm. Campbell, Faruzabel, Grabantani. We got to see all of their like their home lives and like the various forms of oppression that they felt. We got a sense of who they were as characters. And yeah, they were broadly drawn as characters, but they had character. Hmm. The characters in this movie are really not fleshed out very well. Like, Kaylee Spaney has more screen time, but I really don't get a great sense of what she's about. Mm -hmm. The rest of the characters, um, one of whom was very nice, and the only thing of note I noticed about her character is that she said she had bad knees. Hmm. But that only came up this one time when she was, like, pretending to, like, ask someone to marry her. Please let me go, I have bad knees. And I'm like, "Uh, okay. Uh, One of them is uh, uh, very cool and moral, and that was kind of funny because it's uh, the same actor who starred in Sella and the Spades because she played an entirely amoral character. Oh, Sella and the Spades is a good movie. It's a fun movie. She's good, but she doesn't have much to work with here. And then there's another character who is uh, actually a trans woman. Mm. 
Um, the, the character, I know the, the, I character, know the actress is trans. The character. The they okay. talked about it a couple of times. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, and that's kind of cool because they points out that like female energy isn't exclusively related to, you know. Your genitals. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that's, that's cool. But they also don't explore that and they kind of just leave her characterization at that. And that's kind of frustrating because on one hand, it's not a big deal and that's fine. Good. It shouldn't be a big deal. But I also need to know like what she's thinking. Like what, what, what is her, apart from that, what's her character? What, what does she want? What does she care about? What's she feeling? Is there anything going on in her life that's dramatic right now? And that is not addressed Mm. at all. And as a result, the whole thing feels really thin. It feels really thin. It feels really underexplored. It feels like an attempt was made to maybe turn this into more of a superhero movie than a horror movie. Yeah. And if you, I think if you do that, you go full bore because yeah. this feels really half-hearted. I would not be surprised if this is a movie that had a lot of behind-the-scenes people saying, here's what it should be, here's what it should be. No, it shouldn't be this. Mm. It should be this. No, it shouldn't be like the old The Craft. It should be like a new positive thing. No, it should be more of a horror thing. And I feel like the obvious direction for the whole David Duchovny storyline, probably, and this is just my theory, probably veered a little closer to the way the other Blumhouse uh, movie uh, uh, reboot Black Christmas I was about worked to say, out. April Wolf was right there. Just ask her to write it. I know, but like if you look at the way that the that the most recent remake of Black Christmas uh, mm. uh, worked out and the way that the story uh, progressed there and how they ended up treating uh, um, misogyny yeah. as a form of cultism. Yeah, to- toxic masculinity is an actual like physical substance in yeah. that movie. It's it's a fun concept. It's funny, um, yeah. But uh, when you look at like the way that like so we've got a quartet of like female like superheroes mm-hmm. who end up having to fight somebody. I'm not going to tell you everything that happens or how. And then you have David Duchovny as the leader of like a men's rights group right there, and they're all doing like weird rituals in like their living room, and you're just like, that's yeah. the natural direction that this goes in. And they don't quite go there. That's they kind of do, but they also don't really like that. Should have been the moment. Like that should have been like the vibe. It's like that. Mm. That could have been. I feel like maybe my. This is just my like my conspiracy theory brain. Like maybe because Black Christmas didn't do bad, they rewrote it so it didn't have as much to do with that. I don't know because that just feels like the natural direction for the screenplay. It doesn't go there. Mm. There's a lot I like about it. I actually really like uh, the dialogue. Is very very sharp. Um, it's, uh, uh, feels like they're real people. I just don't know them well enough. And I don't know their story well enough. They're not rallying against anything. They don't understand. Like the original film is basically a film. It's basically a revenge film. Yeah. And that there, that has a formula and that works. Yeah. The, this, the, these, it's, it's four young women who have been slighted by the world and get revenge on the world using their newfound Mastery of the black and, and, arts. At, and at yeah. first it seems heroic, and then eventually it turns villainous. Mm-hmm. It's a perfectly okay structure for a film. No, it's very dramatic and suspenseful. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it seems heroic, but it does seem cathartic, and that's yeah. the important thing. There's there's a bit there where it's like that scene in like Spider Man One, where Spider Man beats up Flash Thompson. No, like no, Flash yeah, Thompson yeah. was a bully, so mm-hmm. for one second that seemed cool, and then and then Uncle Ben takes him aside and he says that wasn't that, cool. Yeah, yeah, no, you had all the power in that situation, and you totally abused it. But it's like that's like the whole point of like a whole movie mm-hmm. in the craft. Um, but yeah, and this new one, there's nothing really driving it. There's nothing to really 
fight against in like a grander capacity. There's also a huge fucking plot hole, which I'm not going to ruin. Uh, it just it feels really underdeveloped, and that's frustrating mm. because this is a very simple, straightforward concept that really could work. And I am very annoyed that there's just stuff I like about a movie that doesn't work. Well, and it's so extra disappointing that we've waited since 1996 to see a follow-up on this material, and and they're still half-assing it. You'd think they would bring it back at this point because they had a good idea to explore, and it sounds like that wasn't the case. I mean, maybe they did and it got rewritten. These things happen all the time. Studio systems suck. Hmm. But, um, yeah, this this did not come together very well, in my opinion. Um, I know some people who really liked it. Okay. Please read their reviews. That's a different perspective. I've seen like uh, reviews from like young people, like people like who are teenagers, who said that this actually really spoke to my generation. That's really great, and I like all the stuff that is actually like indicative of how a new generation of young people talk and view the world and think yeah. politically, and all that stuff is really fucking great. It's the storytelling that yeah. I'm frustrated with. It's the lack of drama and intensity and suspense and the. Uh, poor development of underlying themes. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that I feel drives the film down. Um, and then uh, lastly, you saw a film on Quibi. I did. I saw a film on Quibi. Quibi is going to last for like... Another couple of weeks. Like like maybe 12 more days. Something like that. Not, not a lot, As of this recording, you have like maybe two weeks to, to keep, catch up on Quibi. Um, but yeah, Quibi is uh, teamed up with Vice Media... Uh, to uh, make a documentary about the rise and fall of American apparel. It's called Big Rad Wolf. Oh, I thought this was a werewolf movie. No, this is documentary. I thought you... I, here's the thing. I actually didn't really know about either of the movies you reviewed for this week. I thought and you got to see two werewolf movies. Like, how did I see miss two werewolf movies this year? What the hell? <laughs> well, this is about uh, uh, that... I guess it was a pretty big boom of just sort of hipster clothes, Brooklyn hipster clothing. It's, it's a kind of a... a small slice of the hipster movement in general yeah. that was exemplified by American Apparel, this clothing company uh, that started by a guy named Dov Charney, who comes from Canada, and how they were able to take really basic clothing ideas, make them in America without you know the use of sweatshops. They bragged about that, that they are sweatshop-free. I'm sure you remember the ads. Mm. Used sex to sell it, but it was really sleazy sex. If you remember uh, seeing any of the American Apparel ads, they had an almost amateur porn aesthetic. There was like yeah. outright nudity in these ads. Like They were really out there on the edge, and Brooklyn hipsters ate up these clothes, and there were clothing stores everywhere. I still have a pair of American Apparel socks in my drawer. Um, American Apparel was huge, and just as quickly as it boomed, it went bust. And this is a documentary about it, uh, largely because Dov Charney is a creep and, oh, ha- no. and had sexual assault charges brought up against oh, him. Jesus fucking Christ. Uh, it was one of those things where uh, Dov Charney, and he's in the film, he interviews, and they actually say before they even bring him on camera, they talk to some of his old co workers who were working at American Apparel and ask, Why are we giving this guy a voice? He's a dick. And that was sort of his operational ethos, that uh, he's just going to, he's going to go in, he's got a lot of big ideas, but he's kind of a crazy guy. And he runs around in like short shorts with a dog and an 18-year-old girlfriend under his arm and saying, yeah, we're going to, we're going to fuck up the system. Let's screw the man. And all of the people who are working for the company are all in their early 20s. They're fresh out of college and they're really eager to overwork themselves Mm -hmm. to put this company on the map and they can be part of something. And as it turns out, they were part of something, but... At the 
sacrifice of a lot of dignity. Yeah. And this guy is running around and you know, having relationships with all of his employees. And he had a sex room at the office. It was all really gross. Um, all of the sexual assaults uh, cases were settled out of court. And uh, he was... Uh, thereafter embroiled in this big legal battle to retain uh, control of his company, even though these hedge funds tried to take it away from him. And all of this is dramatized in this uh, documentary. Um, it's really fascinating to finally have some perspective on the early 2000s hipster movement. Hmm. I think this is the first documentary I've seen that actually, that really kind of zeroes in on it because that chapter of a uh, young person's history, like early millennial hipster uh, wares yeah. um, did have its very own distinct flavor. And I think American apparel uh, did exemplify that in a lot of ways. Yeah. Did you ever go into American apparel? Oh, I've been yeah, to many in American apparel. Yeah. I mostly, I mostly shopped at their like knickknack table. Okay. They had like a good, like they had clothes that I gave no shits about, but mm. they had like a table that was full of like fun little coffee table books or mm. like fun things. It's like stocking stuff or puzzles or like, yeah. here's, here's a book of, of jokes about the bathroom and the book is shaped like a toilet. <laughs> like that kind of thing. Yeah. That's what I shopped at American Apparel for. But uh, Dov Cherney is just one of an entire uh, generation of entrepreneurs that sought to shake up the system. He's he's of like Mark Zuckerberg. He's yeah. older than Mark Zuckerberg. But he's but that of, of that kind of that kind yeah, of mentality yeah. uh, where they're entering into a system in order to shake it up mm. and they do, but don't really think about sort of the long-term consequences of that, uh, how to keep their business alive and also how to compose yourself like a fucking adult mm -hmm. when you're in this situation. Like, I find, I find that the personality that goes into a system mm. and decides to fuck it up for the purpose of fucking it up. Yeah. Tends not to be very mature. Is it just me? It's a little odd, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it, 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 American Apparel is essentially the fire festival if the festival actually was pulled off. <laughs> you know, like, like he had these big plans and he put them in and there's actually this big company. But then, you know, eventually it all just folded in on him because largely because of his personality. And the film is largely about his personality and how that type of person tends to draw a lot of essentially cultists but also uh, doesn't really have longevity in mind. It's like living like the punk lifestyle. If you live punk lifestyle properly, you die. Uh, and American Apparel ended up dying. And yeah. and with it, uh, when American Apparel died, it kind of revealed this really dark economic thing that was happening in the early 2000s that we're still trying to live down today, and that's gig economy. This yeah. idea that you are a young, or not so much gig economy, but... Mm. The exploitation of a young person in an office marketplace yeah. where they are expected to hustle five times as hard as a previous generation mm -hmm. for a lot less money. If any money. But yeah, if any money at all, just for the sake of being part of something and getting something on your resume. And that whole Don't ever fall for that, by no, the way. Young that, people who are listening. Never let that become a thing because yeah. let me tell you something. That's not only – that's such a shitty system and that system – and that's, that system is that shitstem. Shitstem. That shitstem. <laughs> that's, that's fine. That shitstem. Uh, is also like incredibly classist because you yeah. have to be able to afford to dedicate basically a full-time job where you're making almost nothing or nothing yeah. Yeah. just for having something on your resume. And let me tell you something, I've done that. It didn't help me one fucking no, bit. No, it, it doesn't matter what's on your, you can say you did that, but that's just a job on your resume. And, and, and you know what it Nobody's says? going to be so impressed. And you know what it says on your resume? You'll work for nothing. Yeah. That's yeah. what it says on your resume. That's what it says. 
And, uh, yeah. and so, so it led, it did uh, lead into this entire economy where people are now being uh, asked to work four times as hard for no money for yeah. the sake of getting, quote, getting experience I or have being worked, part of something important. I have worked 80 hours a week or more. On a job where you weren't a staff writer. Uh, yeah. 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 yeah, where I was technically freelance. So, uh, so and I wasn't making a lot. Of, yeah, it sucks. So, so if if, uh, if the young people are listening and you're entering the marketplace, I hope enough of you have the wherewithal to ask to be staff uh, staff members. Yeah, your because your work you has va- that. Yeah. You have value. Your work and your time has value. And anyone who says that those things don't have value has no value. Mm. Okay, that's I'm just saying that right now. It's bullshit, and it sounds any documentary that explodes that concept yeah, sounds so, like a good one. So this, make, so. yeah, it, it's in there. It's mo- mostly about American Apparel and the personality mm-hmm. of Dov Charney and how uh, this this weird wave of hipsterism carried this company along for a little bit. Yeah, uh, but it, it it's a, one of those big elements in there is this weird sort of economic system. And uh, at the end of the movie, they do interview a lot of the people who used to work for American Apparel, and because it was such a thing. They have to, and they say very openly and lamentably, I hated doing that. And rather unfortunately, it did give me clout to work in other places. <sighs> so in the case of American Apparel, it worked. Oh, so yeah, they knew they were being exploited. They A lot of them hated being there. Mm-hmm. Some of them took Dov Charney to court. Yeah. And it still helps them get gigs. And so, yeah, and they, they openly acknowledge this is the dark side of all of this, is that yeah. it actually does lead to more success. That's weird. Uh, Dov Charney ended up opening his own company thereafter. Mm-hmm. Uh, L.A. Apparel is now a thing. Oh, I remember that. Uh, he got really embroiled in uh, the labor movement, like mm-hmm. illegal labor, because he wanted to treat his workers well. And all of a sudden, his uh, his shops were being raided by INS and stuff. For, because he dared to pay workers like a decent livable wage. Jesus Christ. I can't even do the right mm. thing right. And uh, and it, this even goes all the way up to COVID because his company was making masks, last we heard. Okay. So you can still get L.A. apparel masks made by Dov Charney. Fucking weird. Uh, if you hate the guy, don't buy his masks. Watch this movie. See if you hate the guy. You might. Yeah. He's pretty hateable. He openly admits that he's hateable. Well, there you go. Yeah. All right, well, uh, that is it for our new movie reviews. We're going to review all of our films now on the critically acclaimed scale. Mm. In case it was unclear where we stood on any of these, the critically acclaimed scale runs from C- minus to C+. Most movies are a C. A C is average. Mm. It's fine. It's got its good qualities. It's got its bad qualities. C- minus is below average. That's generally just we don't recommend it. But it could also be the worst movie ever made. Anything in that zone mm-hmm. is a pretty big zone. Uh, and then C plus is above average. We recommend it. Possibly the best movie ever made or anything in between. Whitney, on that scale, where does Big Red Wolf fall? Big Red Wolf, uh, it's it, not a passionate, but it's a C plus. I think okay. it, it, I think it uh, hits all the bases, covers everything pretty well, even if you don't like the subject. I think it is exploring some interesting ideas about the way business operated in that Span of time. Okay. Uh, the Craft Legacy. Uh, some good ideas in here, and I do think that there is some good attempt to uh, speak in a voice of a new generation, but the storyline just doesn't work mm. in this movie, uh, and that is it just, it just can't overcome that, and it ends up just feeling way too thin and underdeveloped, so it is a C-. Uh, the True Adventures of Wolf Boy. Uh, C-. One of the worst films I've seen this year. Wow. I really hate it. That's a shame. Uh, Come play. Straight up C. All right. There's a lot of... there's. It's a perfectly good watch. 
It's a perfectly good watch, but it's not particularly remarkable. It doesn't stand out amongst other similar, better films like Don't Be Afraid of the Dark or Lights Out or Mama. It's just kind of a neat idea, hmm. but that's about as far as it goes. And then lastly, Love and Monsters, I'm giving a big old C+. Me too. This is one of the. This is. It is it's really good. It's one of the most entertaining films I've seen mm. all year, which by extension makes it one of the best. Mm. Uh, it's just really genial and genuinely funny and genuinely exciting. It's got a lot of great characters and writing. It's wonderfully well directed. Mm. Just an absolute treat of a motion picture, and I hope more people see it. Okay. All right, and now it's time for the critically acclaimed Streaming Club. Once again, every single week, we invite our listeners over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, and we let our patrons vote for which film on a digital streaming service we're going to review every week. Uh, we are doing this in an attempt to sort of shore up any holes in our film knowledge. Whitney picks two films from a streaming service that we pick every week usually in this particular category, mm -hmm. uh, that he hasn't seen. I picked two that I haven't seen from that same service and category. We let you pick. And uh, this week, uh, your options were pretty much anything on CBS All Access because they're like, their movie collections, a little bit of a hodgepodge. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you chose, and it was a tight race, but you chose the Michael Caine Oscar-nominated uh, dramedy Alfie, which stars Michael Caine as a womanizer in 1960s England. Uh, who treats women like shit, refers to them as it, and eventually, gradually comes to realize just how empty his life is. Yeah, yeah. It take, takes a long time. Oh, yeah. Um, this is... Uh, it stars Michael Caine. Mm -hmm. It's directed by a, a man named Louis Gilbert. Who's best known for doing James Bond movies mm -hmm. like The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. Yeah, and uh, you've lived twice. Uh, although... It's really a Malcolm McDowell film directed by Lindsay Anderson. Like it, it's <laughs> like that's all I could think. It's like oh, Lindsay Anderson had made this movie, and it was start and it starred Malcolm McDowell. Yeah. Like it would have been so much more acidic. The way it is, it feels like almost casual. Um, it, it feels like it's trying to be cute. Yeah, and it it is sold as a comedy. And the gimmick is that Alfie, the main character played by Michael Caine, is giving running commentary directly to the camera throughout the entire film. Yeah. Uh, he like he'll he'll have scenes and I'll talk to somebody within the scene and then I'll turn right to the camera as like a little bit of an aside to us mm. like he's talking to the audience like a Shakespearean people character. from our generation are probably more familiar with this technique from something like Ferris Bueller's Day Off there, where yeah. there's one character the protagonist although I caught a, I caught one or two characters doing it once or twice and I no. couldn't tell if it was a joke or if they were really being serious mm. about it um, but uh, yeah he is completely aware that he's being followed around he's a star of the movie in fact one of the first things in a, in the film is the camera like follows like basically like the dog from Lady and the Tramp and he like picks up another dog and he goes mm. to an alleyway and then, they, and then in that alleyway is a car where Alfie and the latest married woman that he's having an affair with are having sex in the car and then something happens it kind of ruins the moment and he walks out and he walks right up to the camera and says hi I'm Alfie and then the Title card says Alfie. And then he literally says, now I know you're expecting some opening credits, but we're not doing that. We're just going to get right started. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm actually like, okay, that's an energetic way of opening this thing. Just and, uh, drop you right in. And this is Michael Caine. It is Michael Caineist. Yeah. He is uh, relying on his charm. He is uh, you know, a good old thick Michael Caine voice. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Kind big of a, breakout role for Michael. Yeah, Caine, and and know. kind of, and kind of a not like Michael Caine, but he's Alfie is kind of a scoundrel, and he is not just having an affair, affair many affairs with many married women, but uh, 
treating them very badly at that. Mm-hmm. In fact, he seems to be the master of uh, what is called negging, that is charming yeah. women by insulting them. By being rude and cruel. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't really understand how that's supposed to work, but this seems to be what Alfie is a master mm-hmm. of, and women fall for it. And he brings them into his life. They are expected to worship and admire him. Mm-hmm. And he only ever thinks of himself. It's like, okay. Uh, and he's I'm, open I'm about you. it. I'm yeah. only ever going to think of myself. I'm a Rolling Stone. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, 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 look, th- I can't have you screaming because my landlady will kick me out. You don't want that, right? Now I got to go. Again, I, yeah. I got to take well, care of myself, well, sh- right? Sh- should I make you dinner? I don't know. I might not be back for days. Make dinner. If I come back, I'll eat it. And mm-hmm. they're like, okay. And basically, he's just mm-hmm. mastered this incredibly casual form of emotional abuse mm-hmm. and emotional manipulation. Yeah. And he, he sees himself... As God's gift to women, a charming Lothario who's just here to have fun, give everybody a good time. And he doesn't realize that what he's actually doing is taking advantage of people and a lot of people. And even surreptitiously, like some some other men as well who are interested in the women that he seduces. uh, And basically ruining their lives by manipulating the natural human desire for a genuine intimate connection. And just sort of snowballing all over that mm-hmm. steamrolling over them, taking what he wants and then going the first like act of the movie is Alfie explaining his various sexual beliefs. Uh, but he's also, he's been seeing this girl. She is pregnant and she decides to keep it. And she's like, well, should we get married? And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Mm. And uh, she's like, do you want to be father? Not really. No, like I'll stop by sometimes, I guess. But like, Mm. that's as far as I'll go. And he starts like actually forming like a decent bond with this kid. But he is so committed to not being committed that he ends up walking out on her and basically telling her, hey, there's this other guy. You don't love him, but he's nice. Mm. I mean, shit, I don't know. I'm a piece of shit. Why don't you, you should probably marry that guy instead of me, but I'll always be the kid's real father. He always just throws in something shitty yeah. as well. And then he eventually leaves and she ends up marrying the guy. We run into them later in the film when they seem to be doing okay. Mm-hmm. But like, if he abandons a child, he is actually forming a meaningful connection with. And a woman who, for whatever reason, forgave him his shit. Mm-hmm. And now he's just... Fucking around. Well, he's taking advantage of a sexist system that has forced women to accept any kind of male attention as a step up in their lives. And I think he, at least that's the idea. That, anyway. and, and he's sort he sort of internalized that mm-hmm. and has decided to put himself in a position where he's permitted to get away with just about everything. You're lucky um, to be with me. That's his yeah, philosophy he, under so, any yeah, circumstance. He abandons this child. Then it turns out he's very ill and he's uh, ordered to go to a sanitarium out in the country. And uh, the his... scene where he is diagnosed, by the way, mm. I, I, I gave me hives <laughs> because he's giving this big speech to the camera. Mm. Uh, about all of this, like, you know, like, oh, well, yeah, you know, uh, the, the old bads doing the bad man, and then I'm having sex with blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God, it's like Michael Caine is in the room with me. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I couldn't remember the dialogue, but he's giving, like, a speech to the camera, and then every once in a while, the doctor, like, is telling him things like, uh, so, have you lost a significant amount of weight? Like, no, I haven't. And then they take his... They, they weigh him and he's lost like 10 pounds. And he's like, oh, that's weird. That's like, we don't sweat at night, do you? No, no, I don't. 
Except I do sometimes, yes. <laughs> and you start realizing that this guy might have lung cancer. And it's like, <laughs> and it's actually really terrifying how oblivious he is to it. It's actually a really sharply written scene about how he is not thinking about anything but his own... Basically, he's not thinking about anything except how great he is. And then all of a sudden, when it finally sinks in that he might be genuinely life-threateningly sick, he just collapses. Like, his brain can't handle the idea of anything other than, I'm great and I'm going to live forever. And then, turns out he's fine. He's He's got, like, a lung infection, but he'll be okay. So he's in a sanitarium, and he's befriending this, like, old married man. Uh, like in a thing next to him. Mm. And then over the course of time, he ends up leaving, spending some time with the guy's wife and having an affair with her and then getting her pregnant. Mm. And that leads to a really harrowing bit. There's a really, with Denholm Elliott of all people uh, from uh, the Indiana Jones movies, uh, who performs essentially the Vera Drake role. Yeah. And I'll let you look up the movie Vera Drake. It's a Mike Lee film. It's very, very good. Uh, Which, yeah, leads to more, uh, more talk of abortion. Yeah, this was actually very uh, controversial at the yeah. time, and a lot of major actors actually turned down this role, specifically because abortion was such a taboo topic at mm. the time. And, and the uh, movie really... I, I actually don't always agree with everything the movie like says about it, but it confronts it in a way that it's actually very atypical yeah, and unusual of the era. It's, it's incredibly frank, and uh, it is s- such a harrowing experience for everyone involved that Alfie, for the first time, begins to realize that there's people on the planet other than him. Yeah. And that's the the thing that sort of starts to make him realize what a shit he's been for his whole life. Uh, it's an interesting arc. It's a good arc. The, uh, the bastard learns what a bastard he's been. And uh, it's not one of those things where he's going to get, like, cosmic comeuppance uh, or anything like that. It's mm-hmm. enough that he discovers humanity. And uh, that's almost a fantasy for all of the viewers, right? Because we all know, we've all met jerks before. We've all met people who take advantage of others. And I think the greatest hope is not necessarily that they be punished, but that they understand that they've done wrong, that they feel a little bit of regret. And Alfie ultimately is a tale of regret. And, and it's actually really rather harrowing. You know, I've, I've heard a lot about Alfie and about how mm-hmm. it's about this man who gads about town and is this charming Lothario. It's got this reputation as being yeah. fun and flighty. It's yeah, not. It's, it's not frothy. In fact, when we go to Alfie's apartment, he lives in a dump. Everything's really yeah. kind of when, dingy and worn down. Whenever he's not living with a, a woman, mm-hmm. his place is a shithole. Yeah. Like, it's like pathetic, actually, where he lives. And you start seeing that he's consciously or subconsciously just inviting people over to his life to just sort of improve his shit. To clean and, up his room, But he treats them like shit. There's this great story arc where uh, he uh, uh, actually seduces Shelley Winters. Who's who great in this movie. She's always fucking I mean, she, great. She's, she's Shelley Winters. She's amazing. But, um, and she actually gives him some of his own medicine. There's this great bit in the movie where he is actually thinking to himself, you know, I'm getting, I should just settle down. And Shelley Winters is like this cool older lady who's got a lot of money and she's like sexually voracious. We're good together. I should just try to settle down with her. And he goes to see her by surprise. And she's got a younger man with her. Mm. And he actually says, what does he have that I don't have? And Shelley was looking right in the eyes and says, he's younger than you. <laughs> that's it. That's all I, that's, I don't care. I got nothing. And mm. he realizes like, oh, is that what that feels like? That sucks. Mm. Still not going to change that much. 
but maybe I'll start feeling bad about it. And that's kind of all he gets. Yeah. Is yeah. that he just starts kind of feeling bad about it. For a while, I couldn't tell in this movie whether I was supposed to like Alfie or not. And mm. I think I, I, for a while, I thought I was supposed to be like charmed by him. We talked a bit, like when we we're talking about Sean Connery, about these like sexy films of the '60s mm. and how love and sex were were like easily enjoyed, and everyone was down with anything, and everything was cool. Alfie is actually, at least as near as I can tell, a movie that is. Um, starts out that way mm. and then gradually just realizes that no listen like, everything we've ever shown you sucked yeah everything well, about this guy sucks everything he's ever done sucks he might be kind of charming because he's played by michael kane but that's the only way he can get away with being what a piece of shit he is this film feels like it's trying to refute something that there have been, maybe it's like a, a, there was a certain breed of like really sexy British comedies about how men were free to misuse women to their heart's content. Mm-hmm. And that was just, that was a, a, a pivot point for humor. The knack of uh, how to get it. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, carry on. Uh, even James Bond. Maybe this is uh, a kind of dissection trying to show that living lasciviously is going to leave a lot of pain in your wake. Hmm. I would, I think this is a good double feature with the original Casino Royale. <laughs> cause that's about how James, you mean, you mean the, the, the David Niven version, the David Niven version, the, the because first feature film, version, the big yeah. joke of Casino Royale is that James Bond is having so much sex. It's becoming a problem. Yeah. And, like, a lot of people are figuring out that you can just seduce James Bond and kill him quite easily because he's just easily let into the bedroom. They actually go to a map, and they just point out, and there's little black flags everywhere, and it's just like, this is where all of our latest spies died. This one died in a bordello, this one died in a strip club, this one died in... And you realize they're all dying because they're being seduced, and, like, that's all they're doing. And ultimately, James Bond has to start a new program within MI6 that's basically just, like, we need people who aren't into sex. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> we need people who don't care about sex because that's the only way to survive, mm. right? That's the only way to survive the 60s is to, right. like, not get involved in the sexiness. So I, I have a – this was sort of like, uh, yeah, trying to refute that free love. That if you live as this sort of, like, free-loving kind of guy, that doesn't make you, like, a cool guy. That makes you a dick. That makes you sad. Yeah. That makes you shallow. Yeah. And the, and I think the movie gets that. It is one of those ones where I feel like it's almost like Fight Club, where mm. it's like trying to have its cake and eat it too. And if you're only half paying attention to it, you might get the wrong message. It's like people yeah. who think that like John Travolta was cool in Saturday Night Fever. The point is he wasn't. No. The point is no, he was no. sad and lonely and and didn't have any meaningful like place in the world. And yeah, he was a good dancer, but that's all he had going for him. And it wasn't cool. Yeah. Um, and I feel like sometimes these movies get the reputation for only like the first two thirds. Yeah. You know, well, like, you know, it's like Scarface. Mm-hmm. We're like, oh, it's like, oh, it's so cool. Yeah. He like rises up the ranks and it's just like, remember the ending? It's not great. I feel like this for Alfie. I feel like Alfie has this reputation of being this like cute, whimsical Michael Caine is going to seduce a lot of people and have a lot of fun. No, that's the Italian job. <laughs> and that's a great movie. And I love that movie. Alfie is a lot darker than I thought it was. I feel as though it's longer than it needs to be. It's it's, it's pretty got, slowly paced. It's slower yeah. paced than I think it needs to be. It's not like it's not it's hardly perfect. But I was pleasantly surprised by how thoughtful it was about its character. Part of me wanted it to go even further. I felt like his uppance could have come a little harder. Mm. But that's me. 
Uh, I did, of course, enjoy the movie. And, uh, yeah, this was a huge breakout role for Michael Caine. Uh, this was, I think it got him his first Oscar nomination. Um, and he only got bigger and bigger roles from here. And you can see why. Uh, the original Broadway, uh, the original Broadway production of this, well, the original British production of this starred John Neville, uh, who's probably best known to people for playing Baron Munchausen in the Terry mm. Gilliam film. But in the Broadway version, it was played by Terrence Stamp. Oh, that that's an I interesting. Can totally take see on that, that movie, yeah, and apparently a little bit more intense. And apparently, from what I've heard, he like had a chance to do the movie, and like. Michael Caine tried to convince him to do it because they were roommates at the time. <laughs> but Michael Caine ended up doing it. And it just, okay, whatever. But uh, Terrence Stamp would have been amazing in this. Absolutely. Yeah, he's such well, a great actor. But like, and, and like I said, I, I kept picturing Malcolm McDowell in, oh, yeah. in the lead role. It's, very, very much so. You're I right. Mean, it totally has that yeah. vibe. I mean, he, he was too young in 1966. He would have been a teenager. But right. uh, but it, it's that vibe. It's, it's yeah, exactly yeah. the kind of movie that Malcolm McDowell would make later in the 70s mm. or would have been great at in the 70s, mm. rather. Um, Michael McDowell would have brought a lot more venom to it, I think. But which is what I think the part needed to yeah. really kind of sell the fact that this is kind of an like amoral character. It's interesting though because I feel like if you had had that venom, this would have felt like a um, uh, Neil LeBute film. Like yeah. it would have just been it would have been hard to watch. I think. Okay. And I think this one it's almost too easy to watch sometimes, and I feel like the movie kind of lets Alfie off the hook too much. But it's tricky to strike that balance mm. and. You know, if you go too far in one direction, you might make a really good movie, but you probably make a very different film. Yeah, sure. I'm just glad that they didn't make the film that's just, isn't Alfie great? Life <laughs> yeah. O'Reilly, huh? And, and Life get, O'Reilly. And he gets away with everything. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, yeah. that, that would have that just pissed me off and made me just like throw something at my TV. And it didn't <laughs> go there. I'm glad it didn't go there. I'm glad it had some thoughts in its head. I'm glad I finally saw this movie. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's available yeah, on CBS All Access. Uh, it was remade in the early 2000s with Jude Law as, as Alfie, and I never saw that That's good show. casting, but I haven't seen that film. Hmm. Um, From what I understand, it's a lot lighter. Yeah. Uh, like, I think that one's a remake of the reputation of the first film. Well, there's also, the uh, uh, there's also a sequel to this one. There's a sequel? There is a sequel to Alfie. Alfie 2 on the rocks? <laughs> I wish. Uh, no, there's a sequel in 1975 called Alfie Darling, oh. uh, which is directed <sighs> by Ken Hughes, who directed Shitty Chitty Bang Bang mm -hmm. uh, and other things as well. I'm trying to think if there's anything. I'm looking at his filmography right now to see if anything else like comes to mind. It wasn't That's... Michael Caine, though, was it? No, we would have known if it was Michael Caine. Yeah. Oh, my God. Ken Hughes directed, or at least was one of the directors of Casino Royale. Oh, <laughs> so there you so go. They all tie in together. It's, it's rather apropos, and yeah. then he would also make films like Sextet and Night School. Sextet is awful. With the nineteen seventy eight version with Mae West, with yeah, the, the, Mae West. That's one of the worst yeah. movies ever. Yeah, like so, seriously ever. Yeah, well, Sextet is awful. I'm, I'm, I, I actually haven't seen it, but everything I've heard agrees I, with. I you. saw it on the big screen, and Ooh. like people, were, I saw it at the Cine Family, so that's a, a little bit of a rowdier crowd. Yeah, it is. And then, yeah, people were like screaming and throwing popcorn. It was uh, good, but, good time. But, but Alfie movie. Darling was not well liked. Uh, it starred Alan Price in the lead role. There's a reason you've never mm -hmm. heard of Alan Price. Uh, it also starred Jill Townsend and Joan Collins. Um, but yeah, didn't work. Uh, the song, Alfie, mm. uh, written by Burt Bacharach and played in the American version, uh, performed by the American version by Cher, um, was not in the original version of the film. It was released in England without it, and then they did the song for the American release, and then when they re-released oh. it in Britain, they put the song in. 
hoping to get an Oscar nomination, which it did. It, this, it did. This film was nominated for five five American Oscars, including uh, uh, best actor, best supporting actress, best song. I think screenplay. I think picture. Is uh, that your best picture? Uh, yeah, best yeah. Uh, best picture, best actor, supporting actress, yeah. uh, screenplay, and song. The song is great. The song is great. I think the song mm. captures. I like the song. Well, little, I like Cher. It, it's a little atonal. I, I, you know me and Burt Bacharach. We, oh. we, he we killed my, he killed my father, and <laughs> I have to. Okay. Have, I have sworn revenge against. Was this before him. or after he did Beware of the Blob? Come on, L- beware, that's his. That's his best work. I, I will give him Beware of the Blob. Okay, if you've never seen the original version but, of uh, the Blob from the 1950s, Burt Bacharach did a very fun like doo-wop song. Mm. About a giant space blob that about eats people, That's, and it's great. It's just about a blob that creeps and leaps and glides Be- and slides across the floor. Yeah, I'm... beware of the blob that leaps and leaps. Yeah, that that's and, and slides. I will, I will the floor. give him the blob. Okay. But whenever I hear raindrops keep falling on my head, I want to kill somebody. <laughs> one time I did by accident. Like I blacked out and I woke up and there was blood on my hands. I feel like raindrops keep falling on my head is one of the songs that's actually used better in another movie than in the original film because <laughs> I like Butch Cassidy as Sundance Kid, but that song just comes and I don't even mind that song, but it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. That song works beautifully in Spider Man Two. <laughs> in Spider Man Two, it's perfect. Well, because it's ironic at yeah, that point. Exactly. That's fine. It's hilarious. Mm. The fucking freeze frame when he smiles. Hey. <laughs> Love it. Spider-Man 2 is so good. It is. Anyway, Alfie is also quite good. Um, mm. Yeah, let us know. Yeah, anyway. Again, it, yeah, but I, I, I admire your uh, comparing it to Saturday Night Fever. Because, yeah, yeah, this is one that has a really frothy reputation. But it's actually a very dour film. Exactly. Very, uh, very, it's a lot of bad attitudes and sharp criticism of how certain types of masculinity are very, very hurtful. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, so that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with reviews of other stuff. Mm. Uh, The Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, uh, next week, uh, our patrons got to vote on dramas on Netflix. And I was actually a bit of a runaway, which I was a little surprised by. We'll be doing Fiddler on the Roof, (laughs) which, yes, is a musical. It's a musical drama. Genres are not all or nothing. So I want to remind people of that. I feel like some people are just like, wait a minute. Like, no, that's it's also a drama. So there you go. A, a, a small Russian town uh, called Anatevka and yeah. all, all of the Jewish people that live there and how they Topol is Tevya. Topol is Tevya and all, it's all about their traditions. And all I know about the it, movie is Topol is Tevya. That's it. That's all I know. I, I saw Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway wow. with Alfred Molina's Tevya. Ooh, that's, the, good, that's, that's a good star. The stage production is way better than the movie, okay. <laughs> but we're, we'll talk about that. Well, we'll find out. Yeah. Um, so that's that's next week. Of course, we'll do new releases as well. And of course, we got a bunch of other stuff here on the channel. If you want to head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, you can vote for uh, future episodes of our shows. You can also get a ton of exclusive content, including Holy Batman, where we review every single episode of Batman ever. All our yesterdays, we're reviewing every single episode of uh, Star Trek ever uh, we're doing uh, uh, not on Disney Plus we're talking about stuff that should be on Disney Plus but it's not uh, We've uh, sometime this week we need to record the next episode of Only the Best we're yeah. reviewing every single uh, Oscar nominee in history or yeah. Best Picture nominee rather um, and uh, yeah a bunch of other stuff besides we just dropped a commentary track for Sleepy Hollow and in the month of November because we were supposed to be having a James Bond movie and we're not uh, we're going to be doing a commentary track for everyone's favorite James Bond film, Die Another Day. 
It's the it best a, one. It was a decision it's the best we made. one ever made. Anyway, uh, and of course, you can email us, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We would love to hear from you. We might read your emails or answer your questions or respond to your criticisms on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Seibold. And uh, that is a wrap. And everyone's a critic. Also, Star Trek quote. <laughs> we'll see and, you next uh, season. <laughs> Bye. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>